where the trauma center is 45 minutes or an hour away. And then it takes 30 minutes to an hour to get access to the patient and stabilize them. That Those minutes are super critical. And so this is a product that the biggest clinical need is putting it onto an ambulance and having a hemostatic product to reduce bleeding and reduce blood loss on the way, because that's going to reduce the effect of shock and that's going to save lives of you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people every year who just because we can't, we don't have a product that will stop bleeding after the injury occurs before they arrive at the hospital. So that's a huge, huge windfall. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I have the real pleasure of speaking with Mike Bruckman, the CEO of Hyma Therapeutics. With a PhD in organic chemistry and additional training in biomedical engineering and management, Mike joined the founding team at Hyma as CEO in 2018 and has led their commercialization. Having brought in over $13 million in government funding to support their program over the last five years, Hyma was the sole team selected by DARPA to receive funding in pursuit of manufacturing a fully dried whole blood product. Hyma, based here in Cleveland, is a biopharma company developing cell and platelet-inspired therapies for the treatment of bleeding and a variety of other blood-related ailments. Hyma's initial focus is on the application of their platelet-inspired therapies to mitigate active bleeding and bleeding risks after traumatic injury, surgery, thrombocytopenia, and other rare bleeding disorders. Hyma's lead technology, called Synthoplate, is a novel, fully synthetic hemostatic agent that mitigates bleeding by acting at the site of injury and amplifying your body's natural clotting mechanisms. I learned a great deal from this conversation with Mike. We cover everything from his path from academia to entrepreneurship to the basics of platelets and the basics of blood biology to the vast implications that Hyma's synthetic platelet technology can have on the whole field of blood-related diseases. So please enjoy my conversation with Mike Bruckman after a brief message from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Air CFO, whose story we actually shared back on episode 23 of Lay of the Land with Air CFO's founder and CEO, Justin McLaughlin. For many founders, dealing with finances and taxes is stressful, confusing, and time-consuming. Yet without paying proper attention to your finances and taxes, you won't be able to produce accurate nor timely financials and forecasts for your team or for your investors. And even worse, if you miss critical tax deadlines, you'll get hit with unnecessary penalties from the IRS. These kinds of financial and tax missteps can jeopardize your entire startup and your vision. Running a startup is hard enough. Work with AirCFO and you'll get best-in-class finance, accounting, HR, and tax support. AirCFO takes care of your back office so you can focus on growing from startup to scale-up. As a Lay of the Land listener, visit aircfo.com for more information and to set up a call. And tell them Lay of the Land sent you. Again, that's aircfo.com. The link will be in the show notes. With your background in 
biomedical engineering and a PhD in chemistry, I imagine there's a, a myriad of, of fascinating biological areas you could have chosen to, to focus on. To start, I, I'd love to understand how your journey unfolded to arrive at this interest in you know, working on treatments for bleeding disorders and other blood-related diseases. Can, can you kind of take us through your journey to become a biopharma entrepreneur and how, how your experience informed this passion? Yeah, what a good and open-ended question to start out with, right? <laughs> so I went through this process recently of thinking back, and as most PhDs like to do as they tra transition throughout their career, they like to draw these you know, lines connecting dots with uh, purpose, right? <laughs> and so you know, I, I'm Midwest or, or you know, born and raised in this general area. I grew up in Rochester, New York of a middle-class family where the, the value is placed on hard work, doing the right thing, and, you know, just being a good, honest person, right? Doing something hard work worth doing. And then I went to undergrad in chemistry at University of Buffalo. And it was there that I got my first kind of exposure to basic research. Like, I knew I wanted to be in science, but then it was like, oh, you know, what can I do with it? I didn't know. I was coming right out of high school. And what, and I think in my third or fourth year, I took a biochemistry class from a professor who had, I had heard through the grapevine that he had started his own company. And I remember thinking, mm. man, that's really cool. Like, I want to come up with some new idea in my brain and then turn that idea into a product, either through basic research on the academic side or through translational research on the startup side or, you know, in a larger business. But I didn't really know how to do that or what to do. So Continued to get my chemistry degree in Buffalo, then went down to um, University of South Carolina, got my, uh, you know, dove a little bit deeper. So getting my PhD in my mind at South Carolina was like learning how to dig a mile deep, but an inch wide in a topic to become that expert of experts. But that's what I did there. You know, I learned how to think. I learned how to design and plan and organize and think creatively, but with a strategy. So then I kind of took that experience and I came up to Cleveland and joined uh, a research group in biomedical engineering at Case Western Reserve University, where I got a lot of training in engineering. So taking the deep dive and starting to think a little bit broader. So maybe a hundred feet wide and a hundred feet deep, but you can kind of start thinking more about like, you can take this platform and apply it to cardiovascular disease and cancer and stroke and you know what else are we going to do are we going to change the size the shapes uh, and it's all it's all been in nanotechnology along the way but while i was at case um, because of kind of the great infrastructure and system and educational system they have in place i was able to audit like a handful of biomedical engineering classes and entrepreneurship classes where i'd audit sit in and get to know the professor but I'd sit in on those classes and get exposed to like, all right, here's how you actually take an idea, patent it, and then get it out into the world. But while you're doing that, you better make sure you're talking to clinicians and talking to the government and talking and thinking about how it's going to get paid for. And then thinking about how you're going to, you know, pay for this whole company and raise funds and do all this stuff and build a team, you know? And so then I, I think about it as I went from, you know, a mile deep, an inch wide to 100 feet deep, 100 feet wide. And then as I got into the entrepreneurship side, it was a mile wide and an inch deep. <laughs> kind of all the, all the layers of thinking with a little bit of business experience too. And I 
jumped into my first startup company, which was almost out of left field in its application, but it was an experience in being on the company side. So we're making saliva glucose sensors, but we were using nanotechnology to do it, to enhance the signal. Um, and it was, I joined as director of research and development. And what I learned was that, you know, if I'm the boss, I have to have a vision for what the team's going to look like. I have to have a clear plan on getting things done. Um, and I was only reporting to the CEO, but I was also interacting with the board, the SAB, potential partners. And so I got a lot of exposure and training while there. And then, you know, there's some writing on the walls that this is going to be a tough business. The investors were a little quirky. And so I, I started to t ask around about what op other opportunities there are in the Cleveland area, which is not very many. But coincidentally, when I was transitioning out, Krista and Anurban, the founders of Haima, had just received a good bit of money from the government. And at the same time, Krista had gotten a job opportunity elsewhere. And so they were looking for somebody to kind of come in and lead the ship. And they were developing what we're developing now is this synthetic platelet. So it's a nanotechnology to mitigate bleeding and it acts like platelets. And it bridged, you know, the, the nanotechnology experience I had from grad school and from postdoc. But I had also been involved in the, the project focus for my postdoc was actually in cardiovascular disease. So it was the same cells driving similar functions, but instead of figuring out how to detect where clots are forming in your body when they, where they shouldn't be, like in heart attacks and strokes, I was trying to get them to form at a specific site to stop bleeding. So the the biology was almost the same, but it was the, the purpose and what we were doing that was slightly different. So we were able to kind of combine, you know, 20 years of experience into this one opportunity. Wow. So it was really quite a, a serendipitous alignment there. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is pretty common in um, biotech and pharma. It kind of all works out, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I want to get into, obviously, all the work you're doing at at Hyma Therapeutics, I think though, both for my my own edification and perhaps for the benefit of, of those listening in, if you could just give us kind of a baseline explanation, assuming, you know, rudimentary biological understanding of what the, the core concepts and definitions we might need to grasp here to fully appreciate the work that, that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, our, our fancy tagline is we're making cell-inspired therapeutics. And what that means is, you know, the, the target initial cell is the platelet. Platelets are the cells in your body that basically circulate with not much else to do unless they detect something wrong. And that something wrong is, usually comes in the form of a hole in your blood vessel. And once they detect that something wrong, they start working with each other to plug that hole and stop the flow of blood. And so if you think about it, it's kind of like stacking up a bunch of sandbags to stop the flood of water. And so the platelets are these big, heavy sandbags, and they are designed in a way to stick to each other and just form this nice, sticky plug. They call it a clot that uh, stops the bleeding. And then once the platelets do form that clot, then they work on generating the, their own version of cement that stabilizes everything, makes it so that uh, you know, once that hole, that scab is formed, for lack of a better word, it's not going to break open again. So what we're doing at HIMA is we've taken this, what the, what the 
the platelets do is they stick to the bleeding site and then they stick to each other. And we've mimicked those functions on a smaller, very um, fully synthetic nanoparticle. So a, a platelet is two microns in size, a nanoparticle is 0.2 microns in size. So it's 10 times smaller, but it has the same sticking and aggregating functions. So it works with platelets kind of like extra little sandbags to work with the big sandbags to plug the hole really quickly. And if you think of what we're putting on the surface is kind of like Velcro. So we're putting little hooks onto the surface of these nanoparticles that are allowing it to kind of stick to the other platelets and the injury site, the bleeding site, to help all of these sandbags stick together and form that plug and, and stop the bleeding. Wow. It's fascinating, that kind of picture of it. Where did this idea of synthetic platelet technology come from? What, and, and maybe with that, what are, the, what are the problems with organically the way we do this? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, what people do now is they just get a bunch of donors and collect their platelets, their, their donor platelets, the biological product, store them until they're needed, and then transfuse, transfuse them. There's a lot of problems with that. You know, you can only store platelets for a few days because you have to keep them on a, on a rocker. So like put them on a boat at room temperature and rock them back and forth. And that's the only way you can store them right now. And oh, well. because of that, they're, they're susceptible to basically going bad. It's like putting fresh fruit out on your, on your counter and hoping that it's going to last a long time. Well, it's just not. So they, we have to throw them away after five days. And if you think about every platelet product that you collect, you have to get rid of every five days. That means you have to constantly be collecting platelets along with other blood products. And this creates a huge logistical problem. And so that's one of the big problems with platelet products, the natural products. There's other ones like they have an infection risk because, you know, if you collect a unit of platelets from an HIV patient and that patient that screening doesn't work, you inevitably give the donor, the donee, a lifetime infection. And so that's uh, something that can be avoided if we're able to make a synthetic product like the one that we're developing at HIMA. So, I mean, you know, platelets have all these problems. The value that a fully synthetic product brings to the table is that you can store it on a shelf, you can take it anywhere, it's super stable, it's going to be, you know, cost less than any unit of platelets, which is the real deal. And it works every time. It doesn't have any variability in how it functions. And so there's a lot of good value propositions that our product kind of brings to the table to, to meet or exceed the expectations of clinicians. So going back to the founding and maybe original research behind this, what does the process look like for actually developing synthetic platelet technology? How, how does this come to, to be? Yeah, it's a good question. And so for anything in basic research that starts in the academic space, it's all about incremental advancements. Rarely is something such a leap in an advancement, you know, that you, that's why they have Nobel Prizes for extraordinary leaps in research and development. This is an, a perfect example of an incremental advancement and then another and then another and then, another, and then another, where the original research was conducted by the, the founder and inventor, Dr. Anurban Sengupta, at Case Western Reserve University when he just joined back in 
the early 2000s, 2002, 2003. And he was working on like stents and medical devices that would be interacting with blood in your vasculature. So um, ECMO and t- tubes that blood would interact with, plastic that blood would interact with, and coming up with ways to prevent clots from forming. So we'd l- re- do deep research into investigating what platelets or what's driving like thrombotic complications. So like strokes and heart attacks and patients that have sense, what's driving that and how can we prevent it? Over time, he started recognizing there's actually a huge need after interacting with a number of clinicians uh, that there's really no good products to stop bleeding, especially in patients after traumatic injury and those getting surgery, right? So he started thinking about all of his biological experience in cases BME and, and thinking about, well, I know how platelets work to form a clot. Why don't I try to design a, pl- a miniature nanoparticle or a miniature platelet to mimic those functions? And so he got his first funding for that idea back in 2007 from the American Heart Association. And after he got his first funding, it still took about four years to get his first peer-reviewed publication or first real demonstration that his idea was working. His, his original, you know, intentionally designed concept of, you know, make, mimicking multiple functions of platelets and putting it on a, a single particle uh, could really provide a significant uh, rescue effect for a bleeding, you know, bleeding scenario. And that's around the time when uh, Krista got involved in the in the her, uh, Dr. Sengupta's research group. She got involved as an undergraduate in cases BME, worked for a couple of years, and then transitioned to gra- doing his, her own PhD graduate work in his group. And really, you know, took off and and ran with the project. And they ended up publishing, um, you know, three or four key pivotal studies in peer reviewed publications. And filed patents. And so, you know, if we think about the first funding was in 07, the first publication is 2011. Their first patent was issued in 2015. And then after that, then we have a patent family or or intellectual property protection over the products that, you know, from the entrepreneurship side, she's like, I think we can start a company. There's clearly a medical need. We have a technology that can meet that need. And it's protected by um, some patents to provide value for the company. And so then she formed the company along with Honorbound in 2016 and then started working on writing uh, federal grants to get funding because it was too early for angel or venture capital funding. And so the main investor in these early types of ideas is the federal government, National Institutes of Health, Department of Defense, um, State of Ohio. And so she went after a lot of those funding opportunities because she was at Case Western. She was really, they were both really fortunate that Case has a number of programs internally to support these translational ideas. They have uh, this uh, William Coulter Foundation funding. They have their own internal NIH funding, their own internal state of Ohio funding for entrepreneurship ideas, translational ideas as well as this uh, kind of foundation called the Council for Advancing Human Health or CAW Fund. And so they were able to take advantage of all of these internal opportunities to really build up the infrastructure of the company, identify, you know, what are the key milestones that we need to meet? What are, who's going to fund this? 
What's the clinical initial clinical strategy? How do we get to market? How long is that going to take? What, what key stakeholders do we need to be talking to? A lot of that initial strategy, initial framework for a company got put in place while she was at Case Western. So, so building on that, you had mentioned in, in reflecting on your first startup experience that if you were to lead the organization, you need to have set the vision, right? And where you're trying to go. How have you thought about that in the, in the context of Hymet? When you came on board to, to lead the organization, what, what is that vision you set out to, to achieve? Yeah, good question. Because, I mean, the vision for the company and the strategy for the company has both changed quite significantly and stayed the same at the same time. Hmm. So when I first came on, the vision was to develop a single product, get funding for the Synthoplay program for this hemostatic agent, get it into market and find a partner that would want to take it the rest of the way or acquire us or, you know, provide some funding to, to, to build out the company into a large functioning organization. That has since grown and, and morphed into what I kind of started at earlier of this like platelet-inspired therapeutic company. And the, the reason being we want to transition from this single technology to like a, a platform technology company is that it provides a lot more value for not just for investors, but internally, we're all scientists at heart and we want to solve as many problems as we can with the tools that we have. So we have a tool, we have a knowledge base, we have a team in place that can leverage and we understand the unique biology of platelets and how they function, not just in you know, stopping bleeding, but how they function in driving strokes and heart attacks and how they function in progressing arthro- uh, arthritis and atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. But also there's been some new research, interestingly, over the past 10, 15 years on platelets role in cancer metastasis in sepsis and infection, you know, and and driving these other chronic or very acute diseases that we can kind of leverage what the platelets are doing and what other cells are doing in these diseases and use them as either targets to deliver cargo, or we can start influencing by either amplifying or, or stopping what they're trying, what the cells are trying to do in those diseases. And the first program, Synthos, plate is a perfect example where we're trying to amplify what platelets can do to stop bleeding so that they can stop bleeding more quickly. And other diseases like arthritis or deep vein thrombosis, we want to prevent, and as well as like a heart attack and stroke, we want to kind of prevent what platelets are doing there because they're going a little haywire. They're like, hey, this looks like a bleeding site. We're going to start forming a clot or you know, doing things that look like we're stopping bleeding, but actually it's making the disease even worse. Um, and these are usually in elderly patients. And so there's no you know, genetic support for the, these actions and these mechanisms to get weeded out through selection and so on. So with the evolved vision, and I, you know, as it continues to evolve over time, just in, in the the breadth of applications this this potentially has, you know, just to kind of level set, what does the company look like today? Uh, you you mentioned uh, Synthoplate as as kind of the initial you know product offering, if you will. What is the how does the business actually work here? Yeah, so the, all of the value of the business right now is in the Synthoplate program, right? So if I go out and I pitch the vision, I present the vision for the company is like you. We as a small team are, de- are developing a technology. The development of that technology is going to de-risk 
the development of other technologies. So by getting Synthoplate into the clinic, we can then say like, all right, we know how to make it, test it, and store it. And we can apply that knowledge to the next product. So all of the energy, and the company is pretty small. So um, Krista and I are, are part of the leadership team. We have three part-time members of our executive team uh, and a chief medical officer, uh, Matthew Neal, who's based out of University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Sangupta out of Case Western is our chief technology officer. And then we actually, we recently recruited Tim Plura, who is a, our executive chair, who brings a lot of entrepreneurial experience. So he started seven, eight companies, led them as, as CEO and raised you know $100 million and seen a few exits. But he's also brings the drug development experience. He's taken eight to 12 drugs from preclinical into the clinic. So he brings that that knowledge of like, all right, you, there's a pothole over there. There's a pothole over there. You know, there's a hurdle there. We're going to have to jump over um, instead of trying to walk around. It's going to be easier. So he brings a lot of that experience to the team. So that's that's the basis. And, and then to get everybody involved and remain active without having basically hardly any funds in the bank, our currency right now is ownership of the company. And so we were able to recruit executive management to based on equity, our board of directors is all incentivized with equity. And then our scientific advisory board, who we meet with on a somewhat regular basis, is, is joining the company for the potential, right, to be part of something that they see as some, a product that could help them in their practice because it's made up primarily of clinicians. And so you have to kind of mix this selling the vision of the company, selling the potential, using ownership of the company to get other you know, really smart, really experienced people to weigh in and and provide me with uh, as much guidance as possible, so that I can um, I can go out and tell a story that makes sense, that mm. is low risk, that I could never come up with a strategy on my own. That's why I build the team. That's why I take the advice. You know, and, and all that at the at the same time, there's been I believe over thirteen million in government funding. DARPA has selected Haima in the funding of a, you know, a dried blood product and, and currently, you know, raising a, a pretty considerable round as, as well. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So the, the DARPA project is really exciting and it's one of those things that only DARPA can do um, because it's very high risk, but also very high reward. Right. And you can, you can clearly see the level of risk involved in the amount of money that is required to get us to a meaningful endpoint, which is, you know, demonstration of, of safety and efficacy that's comparable to whole blood, which is, you know, evolved to be the a perfect treatment fluid, right? That's why it keeps everybody alive. So we're trying to naively try to replicate, create a, a fully dried uh, replicate of uh, what evolution has created over the, you know, millions of years. And so that's a recognition in my mind of the amazing team that was put together to propose this, the development of this product. I'm quite aware there's, there was a number of submissions of similar teams, right? So, you know, each team had to have a platelet or a hemostatic component, uh, a red blood cell or oxygenation component and uh, a plasma component. That's from the primary product components of whole blood and DARPA recognized that we had the best team 
but this is this is something that could be really huge, not just for the company, but for the, the public in general, right? The recognition on the Department of Defense for all of our other funding is incredibly important for us because we're in a, a clinical space in, in stopping bleeding that is not as attractive for the big venture capital support. There is interest, don't discount that, there's absolutely interest, interest but we're creating a drug that stops bleeding, but it's stopping the flow of fluid, right? So there's inherent risks. We believe we have a product that is very low risk based on how it's designed, but historically, these products uh, have not done so well, as evidenced by there's none in the market that we're replacing. We're, we're creating a first-to-market drug. But clearly, the NIH and the Department of Defense recognizes, and um, BARDA, we don't have any funding from yet, they all recognize that it's a huge clinical need and it's a huge risk. And so that's how we're able to leverage our, our NIH and uh, DOD partners to continue supporting us as we de-risk our product development, our product. And the further we can de-risk it with their funds, the more attractive it becomes to venture capital, which um, I was just explaining to somebody earlier today, you know, getting government funding for a drug development program or even by any kind of biotech development program is like driving on the highway, but you set your cruise at 35 or 40, right? You're making progress, but you're not going real fast. When you're able to get to a point where you can remove the governor and speed it up to 70 or 80, that's what happens when you're able to get that VC funding. You're going to start, we're going to start making progress real fast and de-risk the, pro get to where we need to go much, much more quickly. And so that's that's where we're at right now with trying to raise our Series A's to get to a really valuable milestone, a meaningful milestone, with what we consider a, a reasonable, you know, reasonable fundraise ask. Of course, that's why we wouldn't, we wouldn't ask for that much. Um, you know, we're not we're not over asking or under asking. Sometimes this is just the cost of doing business um, in our space. And so, you know, where it's unique when you compare us to say like a Moderna where you know they they went from new product to clinical fda approval in in you know less than 12 months whatever i don't know the timeline was but they were able to start with you know a billion or more dollars cash in the bank and a large team right mm. and 10 years of industry funded research from barda from darpa from these big government agencies to de-risk it all the technology all that platform technology to a point where all right, here's a big, major, major clinical need. We can put it all on fast forward. They were going a million miles an hour on the highway, right? Um, right. We just want to set it to like just over the speed limit <laughs> so that we don't get into <laughs> any trouble along the way, but we're going as fast as we can. So you, you introduced a lot of ideas there, but two that I, I want to uh, <laughs> expand on a, a little bit. Well, one is this idea of competition in that you're, you're almost creating a new market you know, that doesn't really exist, but also that there are others competing in the space. So we can put a pin in that and I'll just introduce the other, which was uh, about scale, right? It's one thing to to prove that you can do this in theory and in research in the lab, and it's a whole other to to de-risk it and, and you know, do it at, at scale. So, you know, in, in whichever order you'd like, you know, we can kind of take these two topics, but I'd love to kind of hear your perspective on on both of those. Yeah, so you know that's a big concern with making 
going from, you know, a clinical trial where you tested in a thousand people to, all right, now we have to be, make it a value of, available for 10 million people, right? Or a million, like that's a multiple, multiple magnitude order of scale and um, infrastructure that's required. And that's an area that we feel really strongly that we're, we have a strong advantage and we can leverage the success of, uh, you know, the, the Modernas and the Pfizer's and the, the BioNTechs and the development of their uh, lipid nanoparticle vaccines, because we're using essentially, you know, plus or minus a few things to manufacture our product. So it's the same processes, a lot, of, some of the same types of starting materials, the same purification methods or similar purification methods. Uh, and we've developed a method to freeze dry it down to a powder so we can store it in a really small vial, just like the vaccine comes in these little 10 or 20 mil, you know, one inch tall vials. Ours will be a similar product. And because the dose that's required is anticipated to be relatively low based on, you know, all of our early testing and the scale, the scalability has been demonstrated over and over again with all these different LN, lipid nanoparticle type products, we believe we can make enough drug product to treat 100,000 people in a one week period in one site. So, I mean, we can do that 50 weeks a year, 52 weeks a year, and that's, you know, you can do the math, that's enough, and that's out of one site. There's not that many people that bleed in the U.S. every year that need treatment. When we start thinking globally, that's when, you know, Maybe we need to open a second or third manufacturing site, but the footprint isn't that big for manufacturing these types of products. And there's a number of manufacturing organizations that have the capabilities. Uh, and you know, someday, if we get to that stage, we'll be speaking with the state of Ohio to see if they want to support our you know building out of our own manufacturing facility. So I I think you're you're hinting at you know the future and and what. The, the goals could could be how do you think about success and what what that impact you'd like to have looks like yeah so the vision for the company has to be always to build a functioning company right we can never while part of our strategy is to to form a strategic partnership with a large pharma a large biotech company with similar similar products that they're already marketing in their part pipeline out there you know selling to doctors and hospitals we have to plan on on building a self-sustained company. What that means is that the longer we are, a, uh, you know, an independent company, which we are now, of course, the further along we're going to get, and the more incentive we have to build out our own manufacturing capabilities. And if we're able to get to that stage, say, you know, during in the next four or five years, during d- during early clinical s- trial testing, then yeah, we'll certainly we're certainly going to continue to seek strategic partnership, and the ideally we would maintain all of our manufacturing infrastructure, and then partner with a large pharma, a large biotech, and they would manage regulatory and sales and distribution, and you know getting allowances for global sales, global distribution. You know, there's a lot of when we go go to that scale of business, we would have to go from 25 to 50 people to 500 to 1,000. And that's a scaling problem that's already easily solved by established companies. But if we don't get that partnership, we still have to build a company with a vision that we're going to succeed. So seek partnership, have the conversations, 
But if in the background, continue to build value by building out the infrastructure, building up the expertise so that even if we are acquired, it's more of a, you know, they're going to buy our building and just slap their name on it, but keep all of the people in place and keep all the infrastructure in place. Hmm. You've mentioned, I think, a a few of these already, but I think just practically it would be helpful to understand some more of the, the use cases of how this, you know, comes into play for someone who is experiencing, you know, one of these, these problems? Yeah. I mean, the the biggest, the biggest clinical need is by putting this thing on ambulances and letting first responders say like this, it was a car accident, their blood pressure is low. They probably, they're probably losing blood somewhere. Let me establish an IV and get this thing in them now while we worry about, you know, stabilizing the patient and transporting them back to a trauma center. You know, you can visualize in Cleveland, that's a problem, but it's not a huge problem. But if you start driving to other areas of the country or even other areas of Ohio that where the trauma center is 45 minutes or an hour away, and then it takes 30 minutes to an hour to get access to the patient and stabilize them, that those minutes are super critical. And so this is a product that the biggest clinical need is putting it onto an ambulance and having a hemostatic product to reduce bleeding and reduce blood loss on the way, because that's going to reduce the effect of shock, and that's going to save lives of you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people every year. Who just because we can't, we don't have a product that will stop bleeding after the injury occurs before they arrive at the hospital. So that's a huge, huge windfall. There's a ton of other areas where they're gonna where it's going to be used. You know, you know, there's millions of surgeries every year. Um, a lot of <laughs> a surgery is essentially a surgeon taking a knife and cutting people open. You know, it can be really small. So like maybe the blood loss is really, really tiny, but some surgeries, you know, orthopedic surgeries, hip replacements, knee replacements, um, spinal surgeries, basically controlled traumatic injury. They're getting patients to sign up and they're going to say, all right, come in, we're going to break some bones and remove some stuff and do some cutting. And uh, that bleeding leads to all, if it's excessive, leads to all kinds of downstream complications. And so if we can reduce that blood loss, enable the surgeon to do their job more quickly because they're not clearing the field, that should improve patient outcomes quite significantly. And the third big area is in cancer patients. And so the main treatments for cancers, bone marrow transplant, radiation therapy, and chemotherapy, these all cause your platelets to just go away for some reason, whether we know the reasons. Uh, and so these patients require probably about a third to half of the donor platelet supply just to make sure that they don't bleed out. And the bleeding isn't always obvious in, in cancer patients. It's internal bleeding. It's, you know, GI bleeding where they have, um, you know, uh, blood in their stool or, or nosebleeds that never stop, or they fall and bump their head and it just never stops bleeding, right? So they're Sometimes, or they have a bruise, they bump their elbow and then, you know, their elbow starts swelling up because they, they bumped a blood vessel and it didn't seal the wound right away. So these patients use quite a bit of platelets and that's an area where we believe this product will help alleviate some of those stresses on the, the blood donation system. Yeah, those are incredible. It seems like a lot of the, the potential applications fall on some kind of spectrum of you know, depending on on where you can get in the development and and proof of efficacy of it, uh, that will allow you to to treat different components. 
and I don't know if you're if, if you can do this, but like taking a step outside of 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 Haima, like how optimistic are you, for example, about you know developing a a fully dried whole blood product, and you know on the spectrum of synthetic blood, you know as a concept, right? Like yeah, no, um, like I said, it's a high risk, high reward path. If I take a look at just Haima and our our product, there's an inherent risk, right? We're not you know some special snowflake that is immune to clinical regulatory and manufacturing risks. And there are certainly unknowns that we don't know about, right? Uh, So we bring in our own level of risk. Then you multiply that by the level of risk of our partnering companies who are making red blood cell surrogates for oxygen transport um, and freeze drying those and stabilizing them. And they're going to have their own set of risks. They have an amazing product, but that does not make them immune from their own set of manufacturing and safety and uh, uh, you know efficacy risks. And then getting everything to work with, right now we're partnering with a company making a freeze-dried plasma, which is an incredibly complex mixture of salts and proteins that you know, help your body to you know, stay healthy after an injury. But the, mixing everything together, together in a consistent way to provide the value that's needed and to test that in the clinic prov- presents a certain level of risk as well. I'm optimistic about it because I can see that we've put together a great team and we have a lot of government support. And our counterparts also have uh, significant venture capital support. So, you know, th- we're able to remove the governor a little bit and move at, um, you know, a faster clip than we had been able to previously. And that's going to enable us to leverage the team and experience that we have to answer any problems that come up when they do. And that's the, that's the value of the team, right? There's going to, the unknowns, unknown unknowns are quickly answered with people by people with experience Um, because they're like, Oh, this is a little bit like what I'd seen before, you know, technically I'd seen this or, Oh, I'm a path of physiologist. So, you know, that's what these signals mean. So if we need to make changes, this is the change we need to make or, this is a safety concern, but it's not that big of a safety concern in the context of what we're trying to treat. So we have a we have a great team, we have a few great products, and then it's just a matter of executing. It's going to be a long road for sure. I think we're yeah. probably a decade from getting a clinically approved, fully dried blood product, but we're getting onto the highway or not highway now, and we got enough gas to get us pretty far. Oh, it's it's very cool. When you think about the, the the road ahead of you, what has you most excited? You know, over over the next year or over the next five years, as you make your way towards that that ultimate destination. Yeah, you know, I'm really excited about getting our chance at bat with uh, with our synthoplate program, and by that I mean you know getting over the hurdle and getting it into the clinic. It frightens the crap out of me, but I'm also really excited to confirm that it's it's as safe as what we're seeing in you know our our preclinical models, and eventually seeing if it works the way we think it's going to work. Right, so we should be in the clinic in a year and a half, as long as we're we're able to raise the funds, remove the governor, and and get there quickly. And the idea that we're going to be putting a product, a technology, into patients is really exciting. Being able to do so in the Cleveland area would be a cherry on top with VC funding for, you know, this small, scrappy, but very ambitious team, you know, led by Krista uh, and myself. And um, I think our, our executive management team is 
very excited to do something meaningful in this space and follow through on the promises that we've made, especially to DoD and and you know potential investors. So that's going to be a big one. You know, broadly speaking, I'm hoping that over the next one to five years, the Cleveland pharma, biotech, devices, diagnostics ecosystem begins to flourish, right? Um, I know Case Western's starting to make some moves. Um, Ohio Life Sciences is getting more involved. Team Neo is getting involved. Cleveland Clinic is doing some things. The VA is is going to start getting involved. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity to build the infrastructure, bring in top qualified, top level talent, and create a community of success where we'll be one of those pieces, I hope. And that's, I think, something that's been kind of missing from the area uh, for quite a while now. Mm. Yeah, well, hopefully we can, we can piece it t- together yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, as you reflect on the, the entrepreneurial journey so far, are there things that you have learned the second time around with Haima that, that you didn't with the, the first go? Oh, so many things. <laughs> uh, yeah, so many things. You know, the big one is um, team with experience in this space, getting people who have walked the walk in the past and getting them to give us advice. You know, and, there, and there's a difference between people who have gotten their elbows dirty and, and done the hard work and put in blood, sweat and tears versus people who've been advisors to those that have done the hard work, right? There's there's a difference between making a podcast and talking about making podcasts, right? Um, it's a lot of hard work that goes into it, all the homework and the, the energy, right? And the thoughts that drives it. The value of, of having a network of peers that has gone through similar experiences or is about to go through similar experiences is something that over time, uh, I've, I've seen enough value in, in having it that I've joined a C- biotech CEO group out in Boston to get that experience, right? So joining those types of groups earlier in, in the development of the program would have probably sped things up a little bit. You know, there's always going to be technical hurdles, but I think the biggest education is, is making sure that we have a good team in place and it's the right team. And sometimes you don't know it's the right team until after you see how people do in their role, right? And then you have to start thinking about maybe we need to make changes. Um, and being intentional about it, but people, 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 that's what it's all about. It always comes back to people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What do you feel are the particular challenges or complications that come, you know, entrepreneurship is hard generally, but I, my, my sense is that when you layer on the bio pharmaceutical component to it, that it's a whole level more, more complicated what what advice would you have for other you know folks building in the in in this space in particular as they're looking to develop innovative therapies? Reach out to advisors and find mentors. You know, find people that have done it before and just straight up ask for them to mentor you. Ask for them to meet once a month. A lot of people are open to doing that, uh, and if they're not, then they're not probably not a good mentor, right? Or not interested in being a good mentor. So, um, you know, I've signed up for the Mass Challenge program several years ago, and and by effect, I ended up being a mentor afterwards to several companies that go through that program, startup companies, all in the life science space. And, uh, you know, I still remain in touch with a few of them and meet pretty regularly. And 
you know, it's not all about me giving, giving them advice. It's about, you know, what am I going through? I tell my stories. What are they going through? They tell their stories. And then we reflect on things. And sometimes we walk away, you know, not giving advice, but really just feeling like, all right, you know, you're going through a hard time. I'm going through a hard time. Let's go through a hard time together, you know? <laughs> yes. But yeah, the key is, is I think finding good mentorship early uh, pays dividends. And that can be through university setting, through incubator setting, through just reaching out to, you know, Google or LinkedIn, who leaders are at different companies that you admire or you want to be them someday and ask if you can talk to them once a month. Pulling on the the academic university thread for, for a sec, what, and maybe this is a little detour, but how does the, the technology transfer process work and what, what, what could be done to unlock more of the latent you know, value that's within the, the research organizations to get more entrepreneurship out of them? You know, it's, it's an area that I'm peripherally plugged into. So my experience with tech transfer is uh, the university or with the university system, I'll put it that way. We're, we're fortunately located physically across the street from Case Western. And so that allows us to go and use their core facilities, right? And so that is really important time and money saving resource, because that means we don't have to buy or build any of the infrastructure on our own. We don't have to buy the, the expensive equipment. We don't have to build our own animal testing research center. We don't have to you know, hire a bunch of people to do these things, and we don't need all that space. So we can live in a small space, but access the resources across the street. Our other interactions are with tech transfer, right? So we... Case Western owns our patents, so we had to negotiate a license to those patents. We're fortunate in that Case Western also has a seed investment fund, and they invested in the company recently. And so that provides us uh, a small amount of capital to start speeding up a little bit and de-risk the program more quickly. Now, inside, going from the inside out, I think they have good programs uh, in place, and I know they hired a number of people to kind of support um, what the support the studies or provide guidance on the studies that should be performed with that funding internally. The, the questions I have is, you know, where are the startup companies going or where is the IP going? So all, all life science technology is just patents, right? Uh, small number of people or a big pharma company will come to university, look at the patents, look at the technology, see the patents and, and basically pay to use the patents, pay to develop this technology. I know case is, is an engine for technologies for science. They've, they're very successful at getting research funding, publishing on the research funding and patenting their technologies. They're also good at licensing out their technologies. The question is where are the licensed patents going? I live in the Bioenterprise Building, which is an incubator for life science companies. The tenants of Bioenterprise have not changed very much in the past few years. Uh, there's a couple of other incubators in the Cleveland area. Who, you know, maybe they've gotten some new tenants. Maybe not. Um, I'm not privy to that information. But I think that, and I think that's something that Case is trying to change, and Ohio Life Sciences is trying to change, and, and Team Neo in that they're trying to create a better infrastructure for young scientists, young entrepreneurs to take a technology that has promise 
and build a business around it with young, ambitious people. And then once you start getting successes that way, then you get successful entrepreneurs, successful people to stick around and do the next project, to advise um, new entrepreneurs that come through the program on, you know, little things they could be doing differently or like providing resources or how to manage IP or how to manage contracts or how to go about fundraising, um, how to develop a clinical strategy, that kind of thing, or how to, you know, what things to think about when building out your, your board and your scientific advisory board. That kind of advice comes from having, you know, a certain threshold of people in one spot that are able to interact regularly. The people have to be getting their elbows dirty. So, you know, there's a place for advisors and consultants, absolutely. Uh, but when you're actually getting your elbows dirty and then you're experiencing real problems at, that need solutions very quickly. Um, and that's where having a close physical community adds a ton of value. Because if I can have a problem that is, you know, a clinical strategy question or a legal question, and I trust the CEO two doors down enough that I can walk down and knock on their door and be like, hey, do you got 15 minutes? I, I want to just bounce a couple of questions off you or create an infrastructure where, you know, once a month, the leadership for life science companies go, goes out and gets a meal together, right? Maybe that's just personally funded or maybe it's supported by BioEnterprise or by Case Western, whoever it may be, right? It's kind of about like providing the opportunities for the less experienced entrepreneurs to get advice from the more experienced entrepreneurs. And that's something that I think that Case as a private university in, in the area should be able to find a way to work with Cleveland Clinic. They have a very strong innovations department, should be able to work with the VA, who is also very involved in basic research, but basic research to, towards DOD relevant topics as well as other area universities. I think, um, you know, University of Akron is doing great science and Kent and Cleveland State. You know, Northeast Ohio is too small to think that Cleveland and Case is the center of everything. You know, we need to be as inclusive as possible and consolidate resources as much as we can, because I think that's going to provide the most value as the community grows, right? Yeah, that 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 density piece to the puzzle is is really important. Super important. Yeah, I mean, if you're not bumping into people, they're not seeing your face, they're not asking questions, and you're not like getting things off your chest. And that's where you start getting new ideas on ways to think about how to manage a team, how to build a team. Trouble with uh, safety, or trouble with let's say you want to change how your lab looks and like take down wall down or put a put a wall up or order a bench or install a clean room like there's logistical things that just pop up and you're either going to do a, a google search or you're going to tap into your network but the easiest thing is to just walk down the hall and talk to your friends but the, right. the, the you need a critical mass to do that from from people who have yeah. already figured out how to deal with with that specific problem 100% right. agree yeah. there that all all resonates a lot well, we, we've covered a, a lot of ground here. Um, <laughs> we'll close it out then with our, our traditional closing question, which is tied to Cleveland and is not for your favorite thing in Cleveland, but for something that other people may not know about, uh, a hidden gem in the area. 
Yeah, I thought about that a little bit, and I was a little hesitant to say, you know, my my go-to is, you know, the Rocky River Metro Parks area. Mm-hmm. Like, drop down right around the river, there's a super long, very beautiful Metro Park area with so much space and, and infrastructure for just enjoying the outdoors. As you get closer to the mouth of uh, the river going into Lake Erie, there's the marina, the Rocky River Marina, right there, which has a little park. But then on the other side of the river from that marina is basically a hiking trail that goes along the edge of the river that nobody goes on. Um, And so we can go there with our dog and kids and they can climb up the hill and slide down and we can let the dog off leash and she can run all over the place because it's a half mile in, half mile out that's almost never used. So it's kind of like our unique special place where you know, we can go, we can have the, the privacy that we always want, and the kids can break, throw sticks and throw stones and play in the river. The dog can be off leash, and we can look across the river at, you know, the standard park with hundreds of uh, visitors, and there's fishermen in the river, and um, it's a really cool spot. Well, well, hopefully we don't inundate the spot with the <laughs> deluge of, of people now, but... <laughs> It's, 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 uh, you got to look for it. It's tough to find. So <laughs> not too worried. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, that's awesome. The yeah. Rock River, it's a, it's a beautiful place. It is. Yeah, for sure. Well, Mike, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and for sharing more about the, the work you're doing and, and your own story. It's, uh, it, it's, it's really exciting. Very much looking forward to, to following along on your journey as it unfolds here. Well, thanks a lot, Jeffrey. I appreciate it. Yeah. If people had anything that they, wanted to follow up with you about? What would be the, the best way for them to do so? Yeah, just have them shoot me an email. They can use my work email. It's mbruckman at hymatherapeutics.com. Uh, and we're in the bioenterprise building located right across the street from Case Western. So they're both pretty easy to find. Great. Well, thank you again, Mike. Really, uh, really appreciate it. All right. Take care. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.